Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, what's happening with high-speed rail and the promise of an electrified train that will take us from Los Angeles to San Francisco in less than three hours? You may have seen the national headlines last month that the bullet train got a cash infusion of more than $3 billion from the federal government. So what does that mean for the massive infrastructure project that's now projected to cost well above $100 billion? As part of our In Transit series, we have the California High-Speed Rail Authority's CEO, Brian Kelly, with us to answer those questions. The status of high-speed rail in California as we begin 2024. That's next on Forum. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In 2008, California voters approved nearly $10 billion in bonds to begin construction of a high-speed rail line linking the northern and southern parts of the state. The project envisioned a bullet train capable of whisking passengers from L.A. to San Francisco in just two hours and 40 minutes, all while relieving congested freeways, slashing carbon emissions, and revitalizing the state. But since then, the project has experienced massive delays and cost overruns and has been called the train to nowhere. Yet the story's not over. The federal government just gave the project a record $3.1 billion for construction underway on the high-speed line through the Central Valley and money to a private company that connects the line to Las Vegas. So... Is this going to happen? And when? California's High-Speed Rail Authority CEO Brian Kelly is here to talk about that and take your questions. So tell us, are you a high-speed rail believer? A doubter that trains will ever roll? And why? What do you want to know about the status of California's historic infrastructure project? You can post your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. You can also find us on our social channels at KQED Forum or call us 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Brian Kelly, welcome to Forum. Mina, good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Nice to talk to you again. Yeah, yeah, I think it was 2022 the last time we spoke. Can you just yeah. remind our listeners briefly of the train route as it stands now? Yeah, so as you mentioned, the voters of California approved the high-speed train that the first phase of it is from San Francisco to uh, the southern, the most southern tip is Anaheim, uh, just south of uh, Los Angeles. That totality of that system is 494 miles. And... um 
the the project has never had full funding for all, all of that, and today we still don't. Uh, and so, like you build many transit systems, like the BART system was built in the Bay Area, or you build subway systems in every city, you utilize the funding you have to build build it in segments and 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 in phases, and that's what we're doing. And so we. Uh, we have a substantial amount of money to complete a system that that is started in the Central Valley back in 2009 and 2010, um, and uh, and now we are looking to make uh, make that operational in the valley and then extend out of the valley toward the Bay Area going west and Southern California uh, and Los Angeles going going south, uh, and so the first operating segment will connect um, the city of Merced the city of Fresno, the city of Bakersfield in the Central Valley. Um, and, and that is just the first segment of what will ultimately be uh, the, the system that the voters envisioned and approved. How much of that segment is built from Merced to Bakersfield? We have 100, it's 171 miles, all of it, and we have 119 miles currently in construction. The remaining 52 miles are in what we call advanced design. And that means that we're pushing the design work to be completed so we can uh, sequentially then purchase the right-of-way for those extensions, uh, move the utilities, and then start that construction. Our goal is to be operational between 2030 and 2032. Uh, And the longest lead time issue for us to be operational is really the purchase and the manufacturing of electrified high-speed trains. And so we are in the procurement process for that uh, now. And uh, when the, and that t- takes a few years for the trains to arrive. We have to get them tested and commissioned, uh, and then we'll start operating in the valley. At the same time, I should say, you know, we, we really work on the project in three distinct segments throughout the state. Central Valley's advancing construction, getting ready for operations. We have cleared the environmental work into downtown San Francisco from the Central Valley, and now we're looking to start to advance some design work there. Uh, and in Southern California, we are completing uh, the final environmental segments there. So uh, by the uh, middle of 2024, all of downtown San Francisco to downtown Los Angeles uh, will be environmentally cleared. That's about 463 miles. And then the Anaheim section will be the last part to be cleared at the and that'll happen in 2025. So and the environmental clearance is a big deal because then it enables you to start design work in those places and start refining uh, costs, doing some value engineering, and uh, and then we you know work on funding for the construction for those segments. Well, uh, listeners are already weighing in, and Omar tweets, will parts of the rail open up before others, or will we have yes. to wait until the entire line is completed? No, no, no. Like I said, um, we're doing this in segments because we're constrained by funding. And so the first segment will be that Merced uh, to Bakersfield segment uh, going through Fresno. And then they said that will open first as an operational matter. In Merced, it will meet two other train systems, ACE, uh, that will go into the Bay Area, and the Amtrak system that will travel both to Sacramento and Oakland. And you'll have an electrified high-speed uh, part from Merced south to Bakersfield, where they'll also meet buses that travel to Northern California and out of Bakersfield down to Los Angeles. So that's just the first piece. And then, you know, as I said, we're finishing yeah. the environmental work elsewhere and we we, we need more funding to get those parts uh, operational. But the hope is that you will be able to have passengers riding the train through the Central Valley by 2033. Is that what I'm hearing? That, that's correct. That's correct. And, and just 
you know, one other note, I, you know, that term that you use in the introduction, you know, trained to nowhere. I think at one time that was certainly maybe an apt description when uh, the federal government first gave California money for this project back in 09 and, and 10. And it was 119, only the 119 mile segment, which went from a town in Madera literally to an orchard. Uh, but what we've done under the Newsom administration is redefined what that Central Valley should be. And we're going into the the downtown of three of the fastest growing cities in California. And I think that's what changes the ridership model. That's what makes it uh, a better operating segment. And then again, we got to get to the Bay Area. We got to get to Southern California to really realize all the benefits of the system. Yes, from Merced to Fresno to Bakersfield. Okay, so right. does that mean that that money that you just got from the federal government is enough to complete that line, the $3.1 billion? Uh, not by itself. Last year, we put out a report that uh, identified about an 8 to $10 billion funding gap for us to complete that segment. And we also laid out a, a strategy to get about $8 billion out of the federal government for that strategy. And so you might recall the federal government passed the what's called the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act in 2021. This is the first major tranche of dollars uh, out of that act that we sought and received uh, at this year. Uh, and so in the first two years of the act, we've received about $3.4 billion, And that's part of our five-year strategy to get $8 billion in federal funds. So we don't have it all in place yet, but we're, we're still working and, and have a five-year goal to get that. And so, then, you know, we also need to, we have to stabilize funds at the state level because the state funding expires in 2030. So we got more work to do on, on funding, but we have enough to certainly, you know, advance this uh, greatly uh, and really yeah. just get down to the operating uh, pieces at the end. What is the total cost of just the 171 miles between Merced and Bakersfield? Yeah, that stretch by itself uh, is uh, between, uh, it's a range right now, it's between uh, roughly 30, 32 billion just for that stretch right there, that 171 miles. Ooh, when California voters, and I'm sure you don't need to be reminded of this, but let me just remind listeners, first yeah. approved the project in 2008, the rail line was supposed to cost $33 billion total and be completed by 2020. Mm-hmm. The entire well, co- thing yeah. is projected to cost more than $100 billion, maybe even closer yes. to $130 billion, um, yes. according to some estimates. And so I think what really comes to mind for people is, why is it so much more expensive and why is it taken so long? Well, I have a couple answers to that. I mean, the first thing is nothing in 2008, whatever something cost in 2008, it certainly doesn't cost that in 2023, 2024, right? I mean, a, a gallon of gas in, in 2008 was $2.50. Today it's, you know, $5.89. So Still it, a it's, major it's not jump the same. from 33 billion to 133. It, it is a major jump, but let's let's just talk about that for a minute. I mean, there's an estimate in a bond act of what this thing would cost before any of the work was done. No environmental work was done, no design was done, nothing was done. It was an estimate. And and if all the money was in hand then and you could have built all of it right away. Uh, the, right away, that cost would have been closer to what it, what it actually would have been. But the reality is this. Given that cost estimate, the bond bill applied $9 billion to something that was going to cost between 33 and $45 billion at that time, at that time. So you never had full funding. 
And so over time, without full funding, you you operate more slowly than you want. You can't make decisions as quickly as you need to. And over time, nothing hurts the cost of a project more than time. Uh, and without full funding, uh, that uh, the cost of a project is going to go up over time, particularly a major infrastructure project. But there's a couple of important things that people should know about the cost. The first thing is the cost to build all of this, even if it's $128 billion to go from San Francisco all the way to Orange County, uh, Anaheim, and Los Angeles, those costs are absolutely in line with the cost of high-speed rail internationally today. And secondly, if you're going to try to get the same carrying capacity in the transportation system through expanded highways and airport expansions, you're going to spend in excess of $200 billion. So even at the cost that you're describing today, and yes, it is different in 2024 than it was in 2008, it is a relative bargain to the other choice of expanding highways, uh, adding to traffic congestion, or trying to expand airports, which is difficult, costly, and environmentally unsound. Mm. And so for the dollar, this is still quite a bargain. You know, the New York Times wrote a pretty scathing piece a little over a year ago that essentially said that there were political reasons that made this more expensive and complicated than it needed to be, political reasons that were placed above practical considerations. I'm sure you read that piece. I'm curious, Brian, what your response to it is. You don't build any mega project anywhere. Look, you know, your your listeners in the Bay will certainly recall the construction of the new San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge without there being politics, right? Remember, politicians had thoughts about designs of the Bay Bridge, and you and we you work through those things. But I would say this, uh, what drives the route on this project more than anything else is the technical requirements that were in the Bond Act the voters approved. And that Bond Act required us to go from San Francisco to LA and be designed to do so in a certain time. And so our route is designed to make sure we can meet that time requirement. And nothing, nothing more than meeting those requirements has led to the route that's chosen for this project. We're talking with Brian Kelly, CEO of the California High Speed Rail Authority, and we'll have more with him and with you after the break. Stay with us, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The California High-Speed Rail Authority got a big boost last month when the federal government granted the project more than $3 billion. Construction of high-speed rail is progressing at 25 sites in the Central Valley, maybe more, between Merced and Bakersfield. And it's one of the largest infrastructure projects underway in the U.S., though there are still many challenges. And Brian Kelly, CEO of the California High-Speed Rail Authority, is laying them out for us. Kelly has been CEO of California's High-Speed Rail Authority since 2018 and was previously at the California State Transportation Agency. We're asking you, our listeners, to weigh in. What would you like to ask Brian Kelly about high-speed rail? Are you a supporter of California's continued investment in high-speed rail? Why or why not? What are your hopes or concerns for the project? Have you seen construction taking place in the Central Valley or experienced it yourself? What were your thoughts? Have you been on high-speed trains in other countries? What was that like? You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at kqed. Forum. We're on Instagram, in our digital community on Discord. We're on Twitter or X, whatever you call it. You can call us at 866-733-6786. Chris writes, I'm 58 years old and have a bucket list item to ride the California bullet train from the Bay Area to LA in my lifetime. I have faith that it will happen. This is California after all. And Elise tweets, riding the train would be nice, but I'm not laying down any wagers. I'll live long enough to see it running end to end. <laughs> Let me go to caller Miguel in Fresno. Miguel, you're on. Hi, how are you? Thank you for hearing me today. Uh, again, it's Miguel from the city of Fresno. I'm the Fresno council member that has to deal huh. with all the numerous detours because uh, <laughs> of so many construction sites in our city and surrounding areas. But I just wanted to add this. You know, when we developed the Big Dig, the initial estimate was $2 billion. The final price was $15 billion, five times, 15 times more than the initial estimate. And in the high-speed rail project, it's been similar. But it's not because uh, we're simply throwing uh, money away. They've been able to replace bridges, interchanges, reconstruction of roadways that would have never happened um, if it wasn't for high-speed rail. But most importantly for us is they are reconnecting the two communities that were divided by the construction of rail and freeway, the freeway system, which is West Fresno and downtown, an area that was historically redlined and created a huge amount of pollution, of uh, deinvestment. So, um, you know, what better way to invest billions of dollars than to tackle the dirtiest air basin in the country and reconnecting two communities that were divided by the old rail and freeway system. So, so where the investment? Of course, it has challenges, but I think it's going to be the best kind of investment we can make for our children. Well, Miguel, thanks for sharing that. Uh, yeah, I, I do find it very interesting to hear the hopes and what's already happening in Fresno. You know, Brian, in your 2023 project update report, you said that the biggest risk we face is full funding, over which we have very little control. So risk of what happening if we don't get the full funding over which you have very little control? Well, listen, uh, Mia, since, uh, I mean, when I started uh, here in 2018, um, you know, it, I, I think the things that, that were not happy, it was hard for the project to advance because some of the, the, the issues were not well-defined and, and, and they started construction sort of out of sequence and, and so it, you know, risk of cost and delay started to catch up to the project. But we've taken care of that part now. That this, this project is very well defined today, and that's Im important because once you define it, then you can start to to really perform and set the right metrics. And what's what I think we've accomplished in the last 
five or six years is that we have a well-defined project in terms of what it is we're trying to achieve. We are advancing the work against that definition. And we're meeting all the objectives that the federal government gave us when they first invested in this project. Those are the things I can control. And I think if I do that well, and we as an organization perform better, then I think funding will ultimately take care of itself. And so what I just, what I say to you is that, you know, when I started here, uh, somebody asked me for early questions I got when I started in 2018, how are you going to get more money for the project? And it was impossible to say, because at that time it was, candidly, it was just too, too messy. Uh, but what we've done over the last five years, as I, as I said, is gotten that definition right, um, really advanced the work uh, in Fresno, in the Central Valley. We've completed 422 miles of environmental clearance from San Francisco to Los Angeles. When I got here, only 119 were done. Uh, and so, and then you, you get to 2022, the legislature sees some of that improvement. They release bond dollars that are left for this project. We get to 2023, the federal government <clears throat> makes a decision to reinvest as our partner in this project because we're performing better. So the risk of not having funding going forward is that you can't make as timely decisions as you want to make about what you're going to do next. And yeah. so when people talk about the clock and when it will be open, you know, if I have full funding, I can act very aggressively. When I'm still working to get funding to get me to my goal, you know, I can't I can't spend money uh, that I don't have. And so I have to be more cautious and more methodical in how I act. But I think we've done a lot of great work in the last five years to just perform better, to show it's a project re worth reinvestment. We got a long way to go to get all of LA to San Francisco done. There's no question it's worth the investment. And again, in California, in this era of climate uh, a change, you know, in a fully electrified system based on renewable power, uh, getting people from Northern California to the Los Angeles basin in around three hours. I mean, that is, that is uh, totally worth the investment and it is a transformative experience. And I would say probably any of your listeners that have experienced high-speed rail in other countries uh, will speak to that. And, yeah. um, and so I still think it's worth doing, but the funding issue is really about how quickly I, we can make decisions on moving forward. Uh, yes. when we, yeah. So when we have the funding, we can do it. You know. I have actually ridden high-speed rail in Korea and Japan, and it is yep. it is amazing. Um, yes. But I, you, as you pointed out, there are some headwinds that you will need to address. One of which being the fact that you know, high-speed rail funding comes from the state's cap and trade program, and that's going to sunset in 2030, as you say. So, where do you expect to get more dollars? Are, are you expecting more federal dollars beyond the infrastructure money? That infrastructure money that we just got from the federal government, given that that was considered a, a record amount, a, a record one-time amount. Yeah, a record one-time amount. Um, I, yeah, I look. I, I, I'd say this: it's not just about this project. Uh, one of the other recipients of federal money was the the Brightline project, which is a a project that started as a private-only funded project, but now they've they've sought public money and they received uh, public money to run a line between uh, Rancho Cucamonga in Southern California and Las Vegas. And ultimately these two systems should connect and we want them to connect. It's really about how, how we're going to invest in transportation going forward and particularly in the era of climate change. And I think, um, and so I, I, you know, I think, um, you know, as we go forward uh, and we advance this work, 
Um, I, I just think that the, the you cannot you cannot deliver this project. Brightline cannot deliver their project, and you can't build transformative uh, infrastructure without a full federal partner. And and I just point to the national uh, interstate highway system. Right, could not have been built without the federal partner being fully on board. What I've been so encouraged by in the last couple of years is that the federal government has re-engaged in this dialogue. Uh, we had major federal funding, major federal funding in 15 years. Uh, but with the infrastructure bill passing, uh, they got fully uh, re-engaged in this. They awarded record one-time dollars to us and to Brightline because I think the federal administration sees uh, that uh, to, for us to achieve the things we want to achieve from an equity, from an economic uh, development standpoint, from a mobility improvement standpoint, and from an environmental and climate standpoint, electrified high-speed rail for the future is the right thing to do, not just here, but in America. And it's really happening all over America. It's starting a yeah. lot of places. We're a little bit in front of the curve, but it's well, starting everywhere. A lot of people saw Kevin McCarthy's resignation from Congress as helping the case for high-speed rail in Washington since he was such an opposer of the project. But wouldn't a Trump administration be a death knell? We are in an election year. <laughs> yeah, we are in an election year. And certainly, listen, like I said earlier, you know, politics are never far away from a major uh, infrastructure project that is a public works project. And so you have to deal with those things. But but you know, let's look at the recent history. We did survive a Trump administration. Uh, we did work through a McCarthy speakership, uh, and we're still here. Um, somebody once said to me when I first started this job that trying to deliver a mega project, it is particularly a transformative, cutting-edge me me mega project, is like surviving a series of near-death experiences. <laughs> and, and that's exactly what it feels like. It's a great <laughs> description. Uh, we've been close to death many times. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, it's really about all of us. It's not about the project or, or this administration or this administration. It's about what options do we want to have for people to get around? Are we satisfied with vehicle travel on the freeways right now? Are we satisfied with the current passenger rail that is slow and, and is fossil fuel based with generally diesel fuel. Uh, and is airline travel great right now? I think, you know, if you answer those three questions, voters want something else. Uh, people deserve something else. They deserve something better. I've been blessed to experience this in other countries. And I, I've always thought it was the right thing for California. I think the San Francisco through the Central Valley to Los Angeles Basin line is well suited for a high-speed rail system. And I think with the excitement of the connection now with a train from Southern California to Vegas, it is the start of something bigger than just California. And uh, and obviously, you know, I wouldn't be in this job if I didn't <laughs> believe in what we're trying to do. But and, I, really and do, I really, yeah, I really do think it's it's right for our future. You're no in it, Brian, for the for the long haul, given how you describe the stresses. Um. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I used to have hair. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, again, we're talking with Brian Kelly, CEO of the California High Speed Rail Authority. And I hear you, you're talking about how you've survived a Trump administration before and so on. Uh, but are you attracting private investment? Uh, that has been something that has been a real struggle for this and also has been pointed out to be essential in getting yes. the funding that's needed. 
Yeah, so it, listen, most high-speed rail projects around the world where they have private partners, uh, truly, it's on the operating side. Uh, and they, they, uh, the, the, the state, the, the, the country goes all in and invests uh, in the project. Uh, Spain comes to mind as a place that, you know, the federal, the federal government and the EU invested huge sums of money to build an electrified high-speed rail system there. And then they uh, partnered with private sector partners for operational parts of that. Uh, it, it does underscore why it's so important that we get to the Bay Area and we get to Southern California, because that is where you see revenue estimates are, that it'll be a net surplus operating system at that point. And when it is, that's when I think you attract private investors. The private sector by itself, and, and Brightline is, a, is an example of this, the private sector by itself is not going to spend all the capital it takes to build this because they can't afford and they'll never get it back uh, by itself in the, in the revenue, um, uh, in the, the fare box recovery. And so it has to be a public-private partnership. We have to get more of the public work out of the way. Uh, and then there's an opportunity to use it as a concessionaire or franchisee thing for operations. And then you can use some of the money that somebody would bid for that operations to expand the services and expand the capital work elsewhere. Yeah. That's our long-term goal, but we're not there yet. We're not in that space today. Mm. We got more to do. Well, let me go to caller Danielle in Menlo Park. Danielle, you're on. Hi, thank you for taking my call. My question is about the decision that went into where to begin the project, That about why, why in the middle of the Central Valley rather than, say, between San Francisco and San Jose. Danielle, thanks. Yeah, it's a great question, Danielle. Thank you. Um, I would say um, uh, there's several things that went into this back in 2008. And I think at the time when the federal government invested in the pro in this project, it, you know, it's important to know that the state of California actually had four different applications for the federal funding. Uh, and one of those applications was to start between San Diego and LA and other places around the state on this project. And I think at the time, the federal government uh, was very interested in starting in a place that had uh, severe air quality issues, starting in a place that had uh, was was uh, wholly considered an economic disadvantage area, uh, which the Central Valley was from a, you know, a, both a poverty rate standpoint, uh, economic uh, statistics standpoint, and had severe air quality issues. And so I think that led to which application the federal government funded. Uh, and then, you know, to be candid, and I've said this before, and written about it in various reports, the federal government then gave California money to start in the Central Valley. That money also came with very tough deadlines to be spent. Uh, and that required the authority to, to uh, at the time, start getting into construction before it was wholly ready. And that is a lesson learned. You know, it did that because it needed to move the federal money. But that then caused problems if you're trying to get into construction before you have all the right of way, before you have all the utilities moved. You know, it's a recipe for trouble. And so we've dealt with that trouble. That trouble has been part of our past. It's been well-documented and well-reported. But the thing is, today, we're moving past that. Uh, as we look forward to extending to Merced and extending to Bakersfield, we're doing all the sequencing in the right order. We're finishing all the design work now. We will move the right-of-way in the right order. We will then move the utilities. Then we will get into construction. I think in the long term, that will reduce delay and cost issues that this project experienced before. But fundamentally, the reason that it started in the Central Valley was because the Fed, federal government, I think, 
thought one you know, land uh, land value issues were a bit lower there, and it was a place that that was in need of an economic boost. And I will say, uh, and then you know move on to the next question. But I will say the project has had incredible economic impact in the Central Valley, particularly in a city like Fresno, where we've created you know some twelve thousand four hundred construction jobs. Um, uh, we are we have eight hundred sixteen small businesses working on the project. Uh, and so it really did do what the federal government wanted in in that area. Uh, but it's it's tougher from a, a ridership uh, standpoint in, as the system begins to operate. You know, a major hurdle for high-speed rail in Southern California, on the other end of this, is the tunneling that has to be done outside of L.A. through the Tehachapis. Where yes. do you expect that money to come from? And when do you think that would happen? Well, I mean, Mina, that's the thing that, you know, that is an unfunded segment. But listen, the only way, as I said, you got to remember, we're trying to build this project based on performance criteria that was established in the Bond Act approved by the voters. Now, can it be done? It can be done. But you don't gain the speeds between San Francisco and Los Angeles without going through the mountains. And so getting through mountains is a series of bridges and tunnels. Uh, Otherwise, you go in a circular motion up and a circular motion down. And that's why today a passenger rail trip from the L.A. basin to the Bay Area is a 12 and a half hour train ride. Um, and, and and, And we're trying to do it in three hours. And so, yes, you have to tunnel through the mountains to to do it. It's the same in Northern California to get from Merced to San Jose. We got about 13 miles of tunneling through the Pacheco Pass. Um, but that's the way you that's the way you achieve the speeds and the time benefit that you're trying to achieve from the project. So, look, it's the same it's the same answer. We have to continue to finish the environmental work. We have to do the design. Uh, we want to bring the latest methodologies and and strategies for tunneling uh, to the project, and we're going to have to go fight for more money. We're going to have to get more federal money. We have to stabilize the state funding, as we talked about, but it's all part of building that system from San Francisco to L.A. in three hours or less. Oh, and and do you have an estimate? We're coming up on a break of when? Do you have a penciled in well, no, I mean, l- listen. Me- it's meaning an un- when this would happen, yeah, the tunneling. <laughs> yeah, so listen, it's an unfunded segment to LA sure. in the Bay Area. So I don't like to, I don't like to apply a schedule to it, because because I don't have the funding. But what I can tell you is this: I am planning, and we're working toward having all of the environmental work done uh, from San Francisco to LA will be done by June of 2024. The environmental work. Then we want to get to the design work. I want it to be construction ready uh, by 2030. And then it's about funding for construction. More after the break on High Speed Rail. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Borum. I'm Mina Kim. As part of our In Transit series, we're getting updates on the high-speed rail project in California, finding out how soon we'll be able to take the proposed or dreamed trip of under three hours between San Francisco and Los Angeles, hearing about progress on the Central Valley phase, which was what was constructed first. We're talking with Brian Kelly, CEO of the California High-Speed Rail Authority since 2018, and we're talking with you, our listeners. This listener, Mike's, Mike, writes, there are so many warning signs about this project, ever-expanding budget, increasing deadlines, lack of useful incremental progress. This, is, this highlights the limits of our proposition system, broken promises with no accountability. We should cut our losses. How does your guest explain French consulting giant SNFC abandoning California for projects in Morocco, citing a more orderly government in North Africa? A listener writes, I lived in Europe for many years, where they've managed to create a reliable, environmentally clean and safe system in lots of countries. I'm wondering why we're not hiring or consulting with these folks who have pro- proven track records and experience making it work. Aside from the expertise problem, there's the money problem, which is typically addressed in Europe via taxation, a concept we'd probably need to be more open to if we want these large infrastructure projects to become a reality. It's true a lot of people, Brian, are pointing out that California, California's high-speed rail line is just so much more expensive, harder to do, it feels like, per mile than high-speed rail lines in other advanced economies, you know, with representative governments. How do you answer that? Well, I guess I'd say, you know, uh, a couple of things. Uh, one, uh, we have no shortage of expertise here. We have uh, rail operations experts from around the world who are advising us on how we move forward uh, on this uh, on this project. Uh, we are getting into procurements that involve international firms for installing the track and systems now that the civil works is coming to an end uh, in the Central Valley. Um, and so uh, we certainly have a lot of international expertise on on, uh, on the project. What I cannot change, and, and I don't really think it's not, I, it's not a big uh, secret as to why the project struggled early. Uh, and I don't, so I don't look at this and say, oh, there's a thousand warning signs. I look at this differently. I think every mega project I've ever been associated with in my 30 years of, of working in the transportation space is that during the process, there's always a lot of the sky is falling. Oh my God, what's going to happen? And then you get it done. People start experiencing the benefit of what you just did. And the questions become, how did we ever live without it? And again, I want to point to the Bay Bridge in the Bay Area. You know, there's a lot of noise about that. It had some struggles during construction. All of that stuff is true. And today, it's probably the safest bridge built anywhere in the world. Uh, and it's a beauty. Uh, and it's and and those 300,000 people who drive over it every day to get to work are safe. Um, and, and because it's a seismically sound bridge. Uh, and so... You know, I just have a different a different take on this. The 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 things that caused the problems for the project the most was how it got started coming out of the gate. It yes. got into construction too soon. That led to uh, delays because right away wasn't in hand. Uh, utilities weren't moved, uh, and and contractors were being held up. And so there was cost and delays and cost tied to delays. So you gr- you work through that. You as I said, yes. I got here in 20, 2018. We start to work on being more definitional. 
and then our, our performance improves. But there's no uh, we denying that we are still, quote unquote, paying the price for those early issues. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just do wonder, is there any possibility that this might be pared back, meaning that, you know, the authority would say, yeah. we'll have to just do some slower diesel trains on the segment because trying to do an entire line that's electrified is going to be daunting. Like, for example, Tim yeah. writes, why does the high-speed rail project need to go all the way to San Francisco? Can it stop in San Jose and then riders transfer to Caltrain? It, it seems not sure. worth it to spend the money for the last 40 miles in the congested and expensive Bay Area. All this just to say, is there a possibility that this will not be a fully high-speed line, electrified line? <laughs> Listen, I, uh, our job and our task is to build what the voters approved. And what the voters approved in California was an electrified high-speed system that connected San Francisco to the LA Basin in a certain time. And that is what we're driving toward. Uh, is it achievable? It absolutely is achievable. Um, will it take time and money to do it? Yes, it will. Uh, is it a relative bargain compared to expanding freeways and, and, and expanding airports? It is. Uh, and I think it would be my view is that it would be a crime uh, if we spent the billions we're going to spend and then operated slow diesel trains on that infrastructure. I also think it would be a crime if you just stopped the work and left a bunch of monuments to failure in the Central Valley. Um, I think what you do is you you grind through the challenges uh, and you. Uh, deliver a system that people expect. And I believe when people first ride the first segment in the Central Valley, uh, people will understand why it's important to mm. continue continue the system and to get it to San Francisco and L.A. But look, ultimately, Brian Kelly's not going to make this decision. It'll be a decision for policymakers and for Californians. And my view is it is still the right thing to do for the future of this state. And I think it's the right thing to do for the future of this country. Uh, our transportation system is still stuck too much in yesterday's technology, in yesterday's uh, fossil fuel emitting uh, a way of moving. Uh, and even if every car in California was electric, you know, we have the highest congestion rates in the world in California. So we're just going to all sit around and be stuck in electric cars. I don't think that's the answer either. So I think, you, you, you know, it's a multi pronged approach. It will take time. I'm trying to get an operations uh, operating system going in the next few years in the Central Valley. And I still believe that an electrified high-speed train from San Francisco to Los Angeles is in the state's interest. Uh, and I think we can do it. And I think we can do it for what it generally costs to build high-speed rail around the world. Let me go to caller Michael in Napa. Michael, you're on. Hi. Yeah. Good morning. Uh, well, first of all, I applaud you and and congratulate you uh, for all the good work that you're doing. And I'm delighted to to hear that uh, we're getting the federal money. Um, so I'm completely behind it. However, uh, I recently was uh, talking to a friend who lives in France, and he mentioned that he's going uh, to take a trip to Holland to visit his mother. Not a very long trip. And I said, are you going to drive or take the train and he said oh i'm going to fly and i said well why are you not going to take the train because those wonderful tgv trains in in france he said oh he said the cost of taking the train is prohibitive and this is a guy who's not poor so my question to you is how do we stack up money wise on you know per 
mile cost for traveling because if it's too expensive, people aren't going to do it. Mm. Michael, thanks. Brian? Yeah, so as we get closer to operations in the early part of the, uh, you know, between 2030 and 32, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll solidify more exactly what fares will be. But I will just tell you that from our our modeling that we're doing both with the system that we want to start with in the Central Valley, the connecting systems on Amtrak and ACE, you know, uh, the, the, the fare costs are estimated to be roughly uh, what you see today on the uh, on the, the Amtrak system that people are riding today. So we're going to be uh, in that ballpark on fares uh, now. And there will also be some fare differences. Uh, we imagine when we're in the operating segment, uh, based on whether, you know, perhaps depending on which class of the train you're in, uh, that'll have some relevancy. But I just want to, so, so some of that's still to come, but we are modeling this on really what rail costs are uh, today uh, as we look at our, our modeling uh, for, for ridership and revenue uh, going forward. And just one comment, uh, I, I understand the, the anecdote about the, the traveler from France to Holland, but the other thing that's really happening in France is that some air travel is being canceled. Uh, along routes where high-speed rail is providing that service uh, because it's doing it uh, efficiently, it's carrying a lot of people, and it's doing it with a much better environmental impact. So uh, you're seeing that a lot as well uh, uh, in France. And I think you know that's going to be the dynamic when you're in full operations is that you're going to have to price this stuff so that it is accessible, so that you have riders, and so that you're competitive with these other modes of travel, including the airlines. And that's just part of how you're going to operate the business uh, when, when we get there. I know it's early to be able to project ticket prices, but it is, again, another listener, Anna from San Clemente, has a similar concern to Michael. What challenges is Brian Kelly seeing when it comes to car and plane culture? How is he going to attract people who would rather fly? Will high-speed rail be able to compete with the price of flights and car travel? Let me go to caller Mark in Dublin next. Mark, you're on. Brian, um, I would say anything that gets us uh, out of our cars and out of the air is, a, is an excellent idea. And as you suggested, the key is going to be the feeder system, both getting you to the train and from the train. And as a case in point, I'd like to offer the example of Germany when I visit my family there. Uh, I live in Dublin. I take uh, usually a cab to BART, BART to the plane, uh, the plane to Frankfurt, and then from Frankfurt, I get on the high-speed train to Kassel, then I take a local uh, a regional train to Wabern, and then the local train to Fritzlar, and then it's a short walk to where my family lives. So the only the the only non-public uh, uh, transportation I've taken is that short uh, two-mile cab ride, and it, it works wonderfully. But that unfortunately is an anomaly. You know, you can't do it everywhere, but hopefully it will become a more common mode of getting around. Yeah, I would just uh, say you know that that first and last mile trip is always the the uh, the thing that gets you is the biggest sort of challenge on how to make it most convenient for folks folks to take uh, a, a public transit. But I would say the way that we are building this right, um, there are key hub stations that should make it easy for mode uh, transfers. Um, for example. You know, ultimately in San Francisco, we want to go to the downtown uh, Transbay Terminal. In San Jose, there's a Diridon station where both Caltrain and BART 
uh, Amtrak and high-speed rail would come into one station for easy cross-platform uh, transfer. Even what we're starting with in the Central Valley at the Merced station, uh, Ace and Amtrak would meet the high-speed train there with a simple cross-platform uh, transfer from one to the other. And the other thing I would say, just in terms of making it mode convenient, as he described uh, in Frankfurt, you know, where uh, the Burbank Airport comes to mind, where we are, uh, we're proposing a station that is about a hundred foot walk uh, from the what will be the new uh, Burbank Airport terminal that they are uh, now going through the environmental process on and looking to build. And so, again, you imagine taking the train into Southern California, getting off the, the train at the Burbank station, having a short walk to the airplane. It's similar to, I think, what was the benefit of the BART station, uh, the BART train getting to the San Francisco airport. And it's the, the kind of intermodal connectivity that we, uh, we are planning for, that we seek, and that we, uh, we want to be part of this system going forward. I think it's important that we develop this, that we produce this, and we operate this in a way that has the, the rider or the, the, the passenger in mind. We're talking the head of California's High-Speed Rail Authority, Brian Kelly. We're talking to him, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, this listener writes, how can voters ever trust estimates to fund any public works projects if they are never right? Voters expect real estimates and not a litany of caveats and setbacks. Those numbers should be included in your estimates. Anything less is irresponsible. Mike tweets, with a $68 billion deficit, why not shut the project down to help fix the budget? I think the last time I saw polling on this, Brian, high-speed rail still enjoyed over 50% support from Californians, maybe even as high as 56%, as I understand it, though there are some partisan differences in those numbers. But I think what those comments make me think about is how do you plan to maintain that, given the delays and the uncertainty in terms of funding um, that we know are very real, though you are inspiring in terms of, you know, trying to talk to us about your your ability to try to address those things. We've even seen Democratic leaders expressing some concerns and reluctance over the years as well. So so how are you going to maintain that level of support, which is going to be so vital to making sure you get the support you need, the resources you need, and so on? In, in my view, uh, Mina, it all comes down to performance, right? And so the authority, as I articulated earlier, had a lot of struggles out of the gate early on. Yes, some of that struggle stays with us today. But when I look at how how we've performed in the last five years, you know, we're coming to the end of the first civil construction package in the Valley. Our schedules are not changing on the two that are are remaining uh, to, to get completed. We are starting the procurements on getting the track uh, put into place and the systems uh, uh, for this uh, uh, for this project. Uh, we have qualified two bidders to build and manufacture the trains uh, for this system, and we're looking uh, in in 2024 to uh, award that contract for for the trains. So, to me, it's about it's a, it's about as I said earlier, being extremely definitional on, on what you're doing, what you're trying to do, uh, advancing that work uh, in a way that uh, is is transparent. Uh, you're talking to the public and policymakers about both. Uh, the challenges and the opportunities. Yeah. And, and I will tell you, you, you know, you mentioned earlier in my prior capacity when I was the secretary of transportation here, you know, uh, it, it really was the Bay Bridge that was the big mega project at the time that, that was going through some construction uh, challenges. But I learned a very important lesson 
on that project that I am applying while I've been here. And that is that, you know, I think we got to give the public and the voters more credit than people sometimes do. And that is, I think they know that when you have a mega project, a, a big infrastructure project, that they know there's going to be challenges. And I think what they want is they want to know what those challenges are and what you're going to do about them. And, and I'll just tell you, in my time here, I've spent my time trying to be extremely transparent on what it is we're trying to do, what the challenges are, and what and, and our strategies to deal with those challenges. And that that is the best that I could do. We, we, we need more funding for the project for sure, but we have to earn that. And I would say in the last five years, I believe we earned the federal dollars that we just got because we are performing better. And I believe we have to continue to do that. And we got to get these, we got to, the public has to see and feel and touch and experience high speed trains. We and just I have think- a, yeah, we just have a minute left. And I do want to ask you so, Steve writes, the number of people that could travel from San Francisco to Los Angeles by bullet train each day is an insignificant fraction of people who need to travel within a city or between neighboring cities for work, school, shop, et cetera. And I want to ask you, so how many people are you expecting to ride this or even just that initial section between Merced to to Bakersfield um, that will get that experience to give it the boost that you're talking about? Yeah. So if we do not build the system, if we do a no build scenario in the Merced to Bakersfield system and you just go with the rail system that's provided today, in 2030, they estimate there will be about 2.8 million riders a year. If you do the system that we are putting in place with the connecting services to ACE and Amtrak and Merced, the annual riders are about 7.8 million riders a year. The estimate from San Francisco to L.A. when that is operational is about 30 million riders a year. And just to give that some perspective, today, the biggest rail corridor in the country in terms of passenger travel is the Northeast Corridor in in the New England states. And the intercity provider of that system is Amtrak. They carry about 12 and a half riders a year. So San Francisco to L.A. is two and a half times uh, what that intercity provider is doing. And and so, again, it is a game changer. It is it is uh, it would be the it would be the most traveled intercity corridor in America. Well, Mike on Discord writes, yes, let's build high-speed rail. Why are we spending billions in California widening highways to encourage people to drive? We're shooting ourselves in the foot. Another listener wants to thank you for your appearance today. They had grown quite skeptical, but you have renewed his faith. That was Stephen. Brian, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I really hope you're right. Brian Kelly, CEO of the California High-Speed Rail Authority. My thanks to Mark Nieto for producing today's segment and our entire forum team for all the work they do to bring you these segments. <laughs> You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.